0: All right, Luke chapter 23. You know, there's certain chapters in the Bible when you go to teach um, that you just have to take an extra pause about. (laughs) That's one of these chapters here. Um, How do you come to a chapter that describes the suffering death of the Creator and do it justice? And of course, probably the best thing to do is just stand back and allow the words of the Lord to just penetrate deeply into our hearts as are recorded in scripture and, and that certainly is intent but you know we we often pray for um, the outpouring of the holy spirit lord pour your spirit upon us that we might have power to do your work and to go forth and be witnesses and walk in the giftedness that you've given but here's something else we need to pray for the outpouring of the holy spirit for is that he would shed abroad on our hearts the love of god that we need the Holy Spirit to be just washing over us and saying, look how much the Father loves you. And, and I pray as we go through this chapter, we'll allow the power of the Word of God and the ministry of the Holy Spirit to just bring a fresh awareness of God's great love for us. And so here we have before us this chapter 23, the day creation crucified Christ. Jesus has already had one examination before the Jewish High Council in chapter 22. He's already began to deal with some of the suffering, um, you know, as he uh, is dealing with uh, those that would slap him and hit him. But this chapter brings us to the conclusion of that suffering and the crucifixion of the King of the Jews. Jesus had announced to his disciples, that he had come to give his life a ransom for many, and that he was going to Jerusalem. In Jerusalem, he would re- be rejected by the, the leaders, and they would crucify him. This was such a hard concept to get into their minds that Peter even rebuked the Lord for saying such a thing. Now, Lord, this can't be. And the Lord rebuked him. And so it's gonna happen, though. And there'll be no more questions. They won't be wondering, is this a metaphor? Is this some kind of interesting parable again the Lord's talking about that has a deeper meaning when he talks about crucifixion? They're going to know in just a few short hours that he was the one that was going to be crucified, just as he said. So we're going to see the Lord move through different trials. We're going to see him go through different um, experiences of suffering um, and then eventually die upon that cross. So let's go ahead and begin reading there in chapter 23, verses 1 through 7, where Jesus has his first trial before the Roman leaders, Pilate. And then he'll move into the second one before Herod Antipas, and then back to Pilate. Then the whole multitude of them arose <coughs> and led him to Pilate. So this is the Sanhedrin um, coming out of chapter 22 where he was before them. And they began to accuse him, saying, we found this fellow perverting the nation and forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar. Liar, liar, liar. That is not what they found. They tried to catch him in that, but he didn't do that. But it doesn't matter. They're going to make up lies. Because what they don't like about him, Pilate is not going to be concerned with. So they got to find some reasons to get a, a, a Roman official that would be willing to take and put him to death. So they've got to make up these lies. Then Pilate asked him, saying, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered and said, It is as you say. So Pilate said to the chief priests and and the crowd, "I I find no fault in this man. But they were the more fierce, saying, He stirs up. The people teaching throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee to this place. When Pilate heard of Galilee, he asked if the man were a Galilean. And as soon as he knew that he had belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who was also in Jerusalem at that time. So Pilate was a government official who ruled over Judea. But you put that picture up there. He actually um, had his headquarters in Caesarea Maritima. Uh, So this would be, there's two um, Caesareas. Uh, One of them is up in the north of Philippi, where um, Peter said, you are the Christ. Um, And that rebuke, that scene that we just talked about, that happened there. But this is on the coast. And this is the place that was built by um, Herod the Great, and they had a breakwater, and ships could come into that harbor. And um, they had, you know, an amphitheater and a hippodrome and um, different types of um, temples that were uh, that they would go. Temple of Augustus, uh, and and they would worship there. And so it was a it was a pretty happening place to be. Um, and there is, if you ever go there, you can see, you know, there was a you can see a pool that they had that was right there on the coast. They brought fresh water in. You know, down the aqueduct, and it it just was an opulent place, and this is where he is. But it's Passover, so both he, Pilate, and Herod Antipas have come into the city for this high festival of the Jews. Now, many scholars, secular scholars, doubted um, the existence or the uh, the accuracy of Scripture because Pilate has such a prominent place in the Gospels, and yet they had no account, no written record of him. But in this area, as they were doing archaeological uh, discoveries, they, they hit a piece of stone, and as they uncovered it, they found this um, inscription, and it's in Latin, and it speaks of Pontius Pilate. Now, all of a sudden, they believe it. Oh, I guess the Bible's accurate. No, the Bible's always been accurate. And, and it, you don't have to find a stone, and you don't have to find a city, or you don't have to find a name for that to be the case. It is true. And if we find it, then it just tells us what we've already known, is that the Word of God is true and reliable. But I always think about the guy who denied the gospel and didn't want to believe you know, that Jesus was a true person of history, dying on the cross, who died the week before this thing was found. And that was his reasoning. You know, I don't believe it. It can't be trusted. We can't even find a single thing about Pontius Pilate. This is not true. And he dies. And next week, somebody sticks their shovel into the ground. But you know, the reality is most of those people would have just found one more reason to doubt, right? They would have found one more thing. So I never feel compelled in sharing the gospel with somebody to remove the element of Trust in the word of the Lord. Because that's how God has set up this whole thing of salvation. He, he finds pleasure in us having faith. So whereas the world may say, I don't have, want to have faith. That's not true. You have faith in stuff. Give me a break. You turned on a car that had all kinds of explosions on the way here. And you don't even know who built it. And you went through stoplights. You stopped at a red light. And you went through a green light because you're trusting somebody has programmed those things right or that the other driver is going to stop you. You exercise faith all the time. This idea that I'm, I'm not going to live a life you know, apart from that which I can see and touch, that's not true. You give your paycheck to a teller. You don't know him or her. You've not vetted them. And you're, you're trusting that they're going to... You live by faith all the time. Have you ever had a surgery? I mean, you know, I mean, this takes a lot of faith. You know, I, I, I've only had one surgery in my life. And, um, and uh, when I had it, I thought, man, this is crazy. I'm just like going to say, yeah, put me to sleep and cut me open and do whatever you want to do in there. And I'm trusting you to do the right thing. I did ask him before he did it how good he was. I did. <laughs> I, I said, hey, before you do this, I got a question. Don't be offended. Are you very good? <laughs> and he's like well, actually I am. I said, well, give me the statistics. Where do you rank? And how many of these have you done? And would you say like this surgery is a sweet spot for you in terms of everything you do? Or is there somebody else that you think? And he's like, nobody's ever asked me these questions. I said, well, don't be offended. But and he said, I'm not offended. He goes, I'm really, really good at it. And so, you know, but, but I still had to put faith there. So this idea that I'm not going to live by faith. Have you ever loved somebody? Then you have faith in that person. We call it trust, but trust and faith I mean they're 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 synonyms, so yeah, these people who say they're they're not going to live by faith, not true, not true. they have faith in all kinds of people, they just don't want to have faith in God, and they don't want to have faith in His word. So we trust in the Word of the Lord, and we don't have to find a you know a, a, a stone with the name of the uh, of a particular person in their To say, oh yeah, now I believe. But it is fun when they find him. And I I like to follow these archaeological discoveries and so forth. But uh, he's known as a ruthless and a violent man. I mean, he's going to be reluctant in this scene. But that that is Pilate. Um, And they come and they seek Pilate's approval. um, Here are two possible reasons. One, they're not permitted to carry out capital punishment. And so this was a a right that was revoked by the Roman Empire in 7 A.D., and they no longer had authority to exercise capital punishment. However, when they wanted to, they found a way. Think about Stephen, right? And how they stoned Stephen. So they found a way to do it if they wanted to, but Jesus was a pretty influential figure. They probably thought there's no way we're going to get him stoned on the streets of Jerusalem. So... They go and they try to put this you know, in a way that the crowds and disciples could not interfere. And they ask for him. But it's just so interesting because he's going to be crucified. Their capital, the Jewish law's capital form of punishment was to be stoned. But yet the Bible, um, David, speaks of the Messiah being pierced, right? And so the, the crucifixion is spoken of. And so it can't be stoning. So they just happened to have an occupying force who has chosen that the means of capital punishment in their empire was going to be crucifixion. And so he was a man that, under most circumstances, would have no problem doing this. Well, Pilate, after talking to him, and we don't get many details, but he says, like, this guy's innocent. He's not an insurrectionist. And so, you know, This is the reason. So the two reasons, by the way, I don't think I made it clear. The two reasons why they had to seek Pilate's approval is, number one, they weren't allowed to. And secondly, of course, he needed to be crucified according to what the prophecy said. And if they took it in their own hands, he wouldn't have been crucified. Now, upon examining him, he's like, this guy's innocent. And here's just my own take. In another gospel, it says that he knew that the leaders had turned Jesus over because of envy. Envy. So this is probably as much a court trial and inquiry about Jesus as it is about them. So it kind of seems like, well, he doesn't really say much, probably because he already knew. He already knew what these guys were up to. And, he's, and, and you know, his wife had been warned, do no harm to this man, um, and uh, Pilate's wife had. And so he hears that Jesus is from Galilee. He's like, well, hey, if, if you're from Galilee... Well, Herod Antipas, he's in town for the Passover too, and we'll just let him deal with that. So we move to verses 8 through 12 and we come to the second Roman trial, and this is before Herod Antipas. Now when Herod saw Jesus, he was exceedingly glad, for he had desired for a long time to see him, because he had heard the things about him, and he hoped to see some miracle done by him. Then he questioned him with many words, but he answered him nothing. Why is that? And the chief priests and scribes stood and vehemently accused him. Then Herod, with his men of war, treated him with contempt and mocked him, arrayed him in a gorgeous robe, and sent him back to Pilate. That very day, Pilate and Herod became friends with each other, for previously they had been at enmity with each other. (laughs) So they hated each other, but their mutual um, disrespect for Christ made them best of buds. Isn't that interesting? So Herod Antipas um, is the son of Herod the Great who made that city that we just looked at, who built the temple and, and many other things. Herod Antipas, though, was the one that beheaded John the Baptist. I wonder if this is why Jesus didn't want to talk to him. You killed my cousin. You killed the greatest man born among women. John the Baptist. And he's like, he speaks nothing. I think the other reason is, um, whereas Pilate, still not a godly man, but seems to be wanting to handle things differently, he realizes as he appears before he, Herod Antipas, this is just a show and a game for him. Just show me a miracle. And Jesus isn't going to do it. He's not going to be his you know, private little magician to do whatever he wants him to do. And so this makes them angry, and he decides... Uh, to mock him and puts this robe on him and so forth, because again the accusation is he's claiming to be a king, which the the angle that the religious leaders have with coming to um, Rome with that is hey there's only there's only one king it's Caesar and he's saying he's a king so if he says he's a king you should kill him because he's threatening Caesar, but of course. These men understand what's going on with these religious leaders and, and they don't bite. But he is mocked and he puts this kingly robe on him and um, sends him back to Pilate. Again, this last verse 12 that they became friends. Amazing that the enemy, that enemies can find friendship in their mutual rejection of Jesus. And I think we all would do well. To hear it all over again that bad company corrupts good morals. That's scripture. Do not be deceived. Why would Paul put that in there? Why would the Holy Spirit move upon Paul to add, don't be deceived? And the reason is because there's a lot of deception that exists even among believers that they can hang out among unbelievers. And that they will not be influenced, and it will not corrupt, it will not um, pollute their faith and their trust. So what the Bible says, the Bible says this will happen. Well, yeah, but not me. No, you. And, and, and if you are thinking that can't happen to you, you are the reason why, it says, do not be deceived. And so we need to walk so carefully. In our last study, um, here, we saw Peter you know and he's following at a distance, and then he's warming himself at the fire. Right then, he ends up denying the Lord those three times before the rooster crowed, just as the Lord had said. We need to understand this, and and I think we have so many examples of this around us right now. And as as we, you know somebody, you know somebody that over the last couple of years has as many people just left the church, and they didn't come back to the church. They ended up beginning to associate, even if not in person, with other people and other ideas. Not everybody, okay? But there's so many that we know, and they end up getting caught up in the philosophy and the worldview of the day, And, and, and now they're not even followers of Jesus Christ. It's like... You didn't catch COVID. You caught something else. What? I mean, I thought it was a pandemic that we were really to be worried about. Oh, Satan seized upon that moment. And he allowed a lot of alliances and friendships to grow. And people being not careful. Outside of the place of fellowship. Do you know what you do with somebody who's in sin and refuses to repent? You just fellowship them that they might find the destruction of their body so that their souls can be saved. In other words, it's dangerous out there. Go learn what how dangerous it is outside of this, the safety and security of the Church of Jesus Christ. And a lot of people just imposed that upon themselves. And not only did they not did they distance themselves from fellowship, but then they also were drawing near on other levels with people. And 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 now it's like they they their faith is not what it was. How do you account for that? Because do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. Well, I thought we we're supposed to share with the world. We absolutely are to love this world and share with them and take them the gospel of Jesus Christ. And as long as you're doing that boldly and consistently, maintain those relationships but as soon as the gospel becomes quiet in your conversation that is when you've got to be careful because now you're warming yourself at their fire you're you well i just love hanging out with them yeah you're 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 warming yourself socially by their fire and we must be aware i'm sure you know somebody i wish i knew far fewer people than i do know that have changed what they think about christ Through this season. And it's true at all times. But it just seems like there was a kind of this emphasis that happened. So he goes before Herod. And he says, I don't find anything wrong with him. He sends him back. And so now in verses 13 through 24. uh, We come to the second trial before Pilate. So he's been before the Sanhedrin. He's been before Pilate. Now going to be twice. He's been before Herod. And everybody keeps finding him innocent, right? Then Pilate, verses 13 through 15, will read. Then Pilate, when he had called together the chief priests and the rulers and the people, said to them, You have brought this man to me as one who misleads the people. And indeed, having examined him in your presence, I have found no fault in this man concerning those things of which you accuse him. You guys are fraudulent. You're bringing false charges against him. No, neither did Herod. For I sent you back to him. And indeed, nothing deserving of death has been done by him. He is innocent. Now, if it could have just ended right there, that would have been a good day for Pilate. But it doesn't end there. Verses 16 through 20. I will therefore chastise him and release him, for it is necessary for him to release one to them at the feast. And this is the feast of Passover. So the chastise here is not the scourging he's going to eventually get. as something that would have been, uh, you know, still quite painful and, uh, and miserable to endure, but it wouldn't have threatened his life. And they all cried out at once, saying, away with this man. Release to us Barabbas. Which it's just it's interesting. I don't know what you do with this, but son of the father, Bar and Abbas, father, Abba, Abbas, Bar being son, son of the father. It's just, I mean, he's not, you know, I mean, Barabbas is not the son of God, right? But it's just interesting that they're saying, no, we want the son of the father. And on one hand's like, you've got the son of the father right there. You, got, you have the son of the father. And you're saying away with him, and yet you're calling out Barabbas. It's just, I don't know what you do with that, but it's just, it's highly ironic, isn't it? That this is what they're saying and this is what they're doing. But it's it's, it's custom that one person would be released. So, verse 19, we read of Barabbas, who had been thrown into the prison for a certain rebellion made in the city. Well, here's your insurrectionist, and for murder. Pilate, therefore, wishing to release Jesus, Again, called out to them. So Pilate was willing to release him with just kind of a warning and a whipping. um, And hope that that would satisfy. But they're not. They um, are, are just saying, we don't want this man. Give us Barabbas. We don't want to see it." And what a picture of the substitutionary sacrifice of Jesus Christ for the guilty. They've accused him of insurrection. And you have an insurrectionist there. The insurrectionist is going to go free. And the one who truly brings uh, life and liberty and peace is going to die as the insurrectionist. And um, and, and, and this is an example of how Jesus has died for each and every one of us. And for all of mankind, he took on their sin. And he took the penalty in his body. And, And we're going to see this in the crucifixion. But 2 Corinthians 5, 21 says, For he made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Jesus takes on our guilt. We take on his righteousness. Not a form of his righteousness, but his righteousness. We become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. And he takes on our sin and he is punished by the Father. But we get a little snapshot of that atonement work of Christ and this um, uh, substitution of Jesus for Barabbas. Verse 21 through 24. But they shouted, saying, Crucify him, crucify him. Then he said to them a third time, Why? What evil? Has he done? I have found no reason for death in him. I will therefore chastise him and let him go. But they were insistent, demanding with loud voices that he be crucified. And the voices of these men and of the and of the chief priests prevailed, so Pilate gave sentence that it should be as they requested. So shame on Pilate. He knew he was innocent, but he gives in. He had even again; his wife had been warned, "Do no harm to this man," and um, and he he does because he he finds himself in this place. These are coming, like, "Wow, well, you don't want to deal with an insurrectionist? You don't want to deal with somebody who says they're the king of the Jews? You don't want to deal with somebody who won't pay their taxes? What's wrong with you? Are you not for Caesar?" So they're really trying to put him in that that tight spot, and he fills it. And he capitulates, and he gives them what they're asking for, is that he would be crucified. Now, when we put all the accounts together, and I'm not going to go through them all, but you certainly can take the time to read all the crucifixion accounts. Um, We get a a, a picture of just the amount of suffering that Jesus went through um, beyond just the crucifixion course that would have been enough. We know that not only had they put a robe on him but they had they had put a crown of thorns on him. These long four to six inch you know thorns they made it into a crown and they, they forced it into his head. I mean you know a slight little nick on your head and I mean that thing will just will bleed and bleed and bleed. Imagine having these things beaten into your head and all the blood that would have run down his face we read in other places that his beard was ripped out he was blindfolded and punched in the face you imagine the swollen face the bloody face the, the his you know beard and the the harm that would have caused and then he was scourged not chastised but scourged and this was an incredibly brutal thing to go through um you know, the, there was a, a short little whip, and at the end of each of those leather um, straps would have been bone or metal or glass or something that would tear into the flesh and rip it out. And um, I remember reading, I still have it actually, um, I don't think it's in print anymore, but Josh McDowell and his book, The Resurrection Factor. Gives quotes from eyewitnesses that watched especially difficult scourgings of, of certain criminals. And the testimony is that it was so bad that you could even look into the inside of a person and could see their internal organs. So you're not talking about just welts, you know, welts on the back of the body. I mean, there's, flesh is flying off as this takes place. And so this is, this is what he's going through. Uh, Isaiah chapter 50, verses 5 through 9. Foreshadowing and speaking of what the Lord would go through. We read, the Lord God has opened my ear. Here's the Lord speaking. And I was not rebellious, nor did I turn away. I gave my back to those who struck me. My cheeks to those who plucked out the beard. I did not hide my face from shame and spitting. They're trying to humiliate him. They're trying to mock him. But Jesus was just looking at him. There was no shame in his face. There was no hanging of his head. He looked at them as a man who knew that he was innocent. Verse 7. For the Lord God will help me. Therefore, I will not be disgraced. Stripped of his clothes, spit upon, beard ripped out, punched, Looking all of this, having the robe, putting a, a you know, crowns on his head. He said, I'm not going to be disgraced. Because he knew who he was. Therefore, I have set my face like a flint. And I know that I will not be ashamed. He is near who justifies me. Who will contend with me? Let us stand together. Who is my adversary? Let him come near me. Surely the Lord God will help me. Who is he who will condemn me? Indeed, they will all grow old like a garment. The moth will eat them up. Now, Jesus knows how this scene is going to end. It's going to end with his glorification. And actually, do you know that even the cross is called the glory of the Lord? Him being glorified? So Jesus is saying, I know how this story is going to end. I'm going to go through suffering. But the Lord is glorifying me even through this suffering. You know, it's a real popular thing, sadly, for many who once were in the church, followers of Christ, at least confessing that they were followers of Christ. I'll let you work that one out. It's above my pay grade. I'll let the Lord figure it out. He can separate people's hearts and choices and decisions but it's real popular for those that have been a part of the Christian faith to now look back and actually say well you know what Um, I can't even believe that if there is a loving God that he would send his son to go through something so terrible as this and so therefore I don't believe the the in Christ anymore and I don't believe in the Bible because no good God would send his father to go through these types of things And so they look at this, and this is their opinion. This is what they come, and they're wise in their own opinion. And so they say, no, you know, Jesus dying on the cross um, is is so terrible that I can't do it. But but what does Jesus have to say? What does Jesus have to say about all of this? He says, my eyes are on the one who's going to deliver me. Yeah, Jesus did die on the cross, but newsflash, he rose from the dead and ascended to the right hand of the Father where he is glorified, and he sits right now. And every knee will bow and every tongue is going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord over all. The Father glorifies the Son. Read it in the Old Testament. Read Isaiah 53 again. Read of the glory that he, re- he receives. You know, read of John chapter 12 of the glorification that he, Jesus says will happen even through the crucifixion. So you can cast your thoughts and your opinions and your ideas and you can say that Jesus is wrong and the Father's wrong. But guess what? You're the one that's wrong. You're the one that's making the gravest of all errors. Don't be wise in your own opinion. Allow Christ to speak for himself. Isn't that, I mean, don't you want that? You who are deconstructing the Christian faith, don't you want to be able to have your own opinion and speak for yourself? Do you want me to speak for you? Oh, no, you really don't believe that. And What you actually believe is you believe that this is the greatest thing that ever happened. No, I think that it's terrible and I can't follow God. No, you are more committed to Jesus than you've ever been in your life. Oh, well, you want to speak for yourself? Well, then why don't you let Christ speak for himself? And why don't you let the Father speak for himself? For God so loved the world. Yes, this is a a dark and brutal moment where the Father is pouring out his wrath upon the Son for you because he loves you. I, I prayed that prayer, but think about this, that in the crucifixion, God perfectly manifested his wrath and judgment and the body of his Son, but also perfectly manifested his love and the death of his Son. You try and figure out how to do something with opposite emotions in that kind of way. Figure out if you can pick a simpler issue. Can you do that? It's very difficult. And yet the Lord, he did it. And so this is not an unloving father allowing his son to go through these things. This is a father that was willing to allow his son to go through this for you. And you want to stand back and put your finger in the face of the Lord and say this is shame on the father. Shame on the account of scripture that says the father sent his son. And so you, you, you come and you, we have a testimony of what Jesus says. And yet you say, no, that's not what he meant. He actually meant something else. And with the father and the love that he has for his son, no, he's really not love. Who, who are you or who would I be or any of us or all of us put together to tell God who he is and what he's doing? We have no place for that. We are so far out of our our league. The Lord loves his son and he loves you. And he sent his son to die on the cross and go through this that he might redeem you. And then he might glorify his son again. And that is what we found here. Now listen, you are entitled to come to the conclusion that you don't like it. But it doesn't mean it's not true. It is true, and you will have to look upon the one who was slain as he sits upon the throne, and you will know that you walked away from salvation, and you walked away from life. This is the way God has done it, and you may think you're wiser, but you're not, nor am I. If this is the way God has done it, then who are we to come along and say, do it a different way? Do it a different way. I mean, if you, this illustration has been used so many times. If you were in a river headed towards, you know, a, a huge waterfall, the Niagara Falls, and you're about to go over and somebody throws you, uh, you know, a, a life preserver attached to a rope and it happens to be a white life preserver and you want orange, are you throwing it back saying, don't save me this way? You could. It's just a really dumb thing to do. The Lord has sent out. Salvation in his son. And this is how he did it. You may not fully understand it and you may not even think it, you, you would do it. But I, I tell you what, when we're in the presence of God, you will see the full, complete wisdom. But I really have no problem with this. I'm, I am thankful to be saved. And I'm thankful to be re, uh, you know, saved in love. I am so thankful for that. And so... Don't be wise in your own opinion. And actually even take the words out of the mouth of Jesus and put your own statement in there. You know, the scourge, which was so terrible, it was actually used to help uh, obtain confession. So the first blow would just be, um, would be uh, put upon them. It would, it would, obviously, it would be very difficult. If a confession came of something they had done or they knew of some crime that had happened... The next blow would be easier till at the end the you know the lashes would just be laid on them. But if if you didn't have a confession to make, then the next blow would even be more, more hard. And of course, we know that Jesus had nothing to confess. And he didn't open up his mouth. He was silent as a lamb before um, you know the shires is silent. So the Lord opened not his mouth. So the Lord had nothing to say. So we have every reason to believe because of the satanic fervor that's going on and and motivations and all the rest that this was a terrible, terrible beating that the Lord endured. Why did he do it? Because he loves you. In verses 25 through 27, Jesus journeys to Calvary and he released to them the one they requested who for rebellion and murder had been thrown into prison. All right, so Barabbas. But he delivered Jesus to their will. Now as they led him away, they laid hold of a certain man, Simon a Cyrenian, who was coming from the country, and on him they laid the cross that he might bear it after Jesus. Now that must have been a fearful moment, don't you think? I'll carry it, but just remember when we get there. (laughs) I'm not the one, okay? Please remember. But You can imagine how terrifying this would have been. Jesus was probably being paraded through the streets without any clothes on, his back ripped open, blood streaming down his face. Another reason we believe the scourging was so terrible is because he can't even carry this this cross beam, which is estimated to be somewhere around 75 to 125 pounds. I mean, that's that's a load. But with the scourging it had gone through, he couldn't do it. Verse 27, And a great multitude of people followed him, and women who also mourned and lamented. When they saw him, their their hearts were broken to see what Jesus and this man was going through. So they led him to Calvary, led him to Golgotha. Verse 28, but Jesus turning to them said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For indeed the days are coming in which they will say, Blessed are the barren, wombs that have never bore.'" Breasts which have never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, fall on us and to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things in the greenwood, what will they do? And the dry? Jesus is saying, you're weeping for me, you need to weep for yourself. You've rejected me, the prince and the peace. I've come riding upon a donkey to bring peace. But now you're going to have judgment. You need to be concerned about what's going to happen to you in about 30 years from now. That's what you really need to get concerned about. One author, his last name is Shepard. He writes of what became of the political and religious players in this scene and of this generation, these people living in Jerusalem. Let me read to you. It's a quote. It says, 30 years later, on this very spot, judgment was pronounced against some of the best citizens of Jerusalem. Of the 3,600 victims of the governor, governor's fury, Not a few were scourged and crucified. Judas died a loathsome loathsome suicide. The house of Annas was destroyed some years later. Caiaphas was deposed a year after the crucifixion. And Pilate was soon after banished to Gaul and there died in suicide. When Jerusalem fell... What Jesus said they should be weeping about. When Jerusalem fell, her citizens were crucified around her walls until, in the historian's grim language, space was wanting for the crosses and crosses for the bodies. So they have a terrible trouble coming. He says, you're weeping for me? You need to weep for yourself. You've rejected the peace that was intended for you. And so kind of a solemn prophetic warning that Jesus gives to them. Verse 32, we see Jesus on the cross. There were also two other criminals led with him to be put to death. And when they had come to the place called Calvary, Golgotha, place of the skull, all those three, you know, Calvary and Golgotha meaning place of the skull, they were crucified. There they crucified him and the criminals, one on the right hand and the other on the left. Then Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. And they divided his garments and cast lots, and the people stood looking on. But even the rulers with them sneered, saying, He saved others, let him save himself, if he is the Christ, if he is the Messiah, the chosen of God. The soldiers also mocked him, and coming and offering him sour wine. And saying, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. And an inscription also was written over him in letters of Greek, Latin, and Hebrew. This is the king of the Jews. I love it. Pilate. See, it was customary that whatever the crime was, it would be. Paid, it would be a placard would be above your head. And so here's the crime. He's the king of the Jews. Now Pilate did this, no doubt, to infuriate these guys. You want him dead? Fine. Then I'm going to do this. Here's your king. But it is so true. He was their king. He was guilty of being the king of the Jews, and they rejected him. They said they were waiting for him, but indeed they wanted nothing to do with him, which is evidenced by their cries for crucifixion. Then one of the criminals who were hanged blasphemed him, saying, If you are the Christ," Save yourself and us. I mean, everybody's mocking Jesus. Everybody. But you know, his face is set like a flint. He's not hanging his head in shame, even at this moment. But the other, answering, rebuked him, saying, Do you not even fear God, seeing you are under the same condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. I mean, you have Pilate, you have Herod, you have a thief on the cross saying, this man is innocent. Then he said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, "Assuredly, I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. If only you could be baptized. It doesn't say that. Do you have to be baptized to be saved? No, but you should be baptized. So, I mean, faith is what it takes to be with the Lord in paradise, to be a part of his kingdom. What an amazing moment. I mean, this guy in his last breath, who had lived a corrupt life and is now dying, calls out, will you remember me? And The Lord said, consider it done today. You're going to be in the kingdom with me today. And so what a, what a wonderful promise. Maybe you're thinking, I've lived too long in my life to come to Christ now. I don't know. Maybe somebody's listening on the radio right now or you're watching on this live stream. And you know, you're at the last days of your life. And you lived a life of denying Christ and wanting nothing to do with him. And maybe you were the one that mocked Christians and blasphemed Christ more than others. And you're saying, only if I could make it right with Christ. You can. Just ask him. Acknowledge that he is righteous, that you are a sinner in need of his atonement, forgiveness, and ask him to remember you in his kingdom. And you will be remembered. And he will bring you in. Even though you maybe have lived... You know, I don't care, 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, 70, 80, 90 years of your life. Without Christ, if you will call out to him now, just like this guy, you will be saved. And you will have everlasting life. An eternal existence, not just of time, but of quality. Paradise in the presence of the Lord. Love the grace of the Lord. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And to prove that he's willing to forgive, even in that moment, with jolts of pain going through his body, he says, I remember you. I will remember you. You will be with me. In all that agony and all that pain, Jesus is still doing that for which he came. How beautiful and how wonderful. Crucifixion was a form of capital punishment that Rome used and it was considered so barbaric that they wouldn't even use it upon a Roman citizen. Something else, isn't it? So terrible. He would die of loss of blood, exposure, exhaustion, suffocation, which certainly seems to be what Jesus would have died of here. So weak he could not hold himself up. Because, you know, as they hung on a cross, their hands were nailed uh, to the crossbeam, and And their feet, um, we believe, we know that crucifixion happened when they would put their feet on top of each other, turn their legs, and drive uh, a spike through there. And they actually found a, a body. If you go to the Israel Museum, you can actually see the bones of two hills put together and the spike driven through it. And... And what they believed would happen is that they, if, as you were hanging there, the body would begin to collapse on itself and upon the lungs so that the, the person on the cross wanted to breathe, they'd have to push up on the spike driven through their feet to release that pressure so they could take a breath of air. They also, the Journal of American Medical Association, and I believe it was in 1985-ish, um, you can find it, they did tests on cadavers, and they to see what would have been, what would happen to a body if it went through crucifixion. So they had these cadavers and they, they performed crucifixions on them. It's a rather interesting article to read. But what they found is that based on where they placed these these nails and these spikes, they, would, they, they missed the bones, but they, they what would, would, would have happened through the hands, they would have been hitting these radial nerves. and There would have been jolts of pain. They would have become so weakened. What they found with these uh, cadavers is they became so uh, weakened that, that the, the joints began, the bones began to pop out of joint. And there's some prophecies about this. So this is the pain and the agony that Jesus is going through because he loves you, because he loves me, because he loves this world. Because he, lo- he loves that lost person that's railing against the Lord. Even, you know, you, maybe you work with him or her. Maybe it's in your house. Maybe it's just somebody in our culture. The Lord died for them. And he's willing to forgive them if they would but confess. No, Isaiah prophesied that when the Messiah died, that it would be alongside of the wicked. And we just read how he died with these guys. Isaiah 53.9 says, And then he made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich at his death because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. So just as Isaiah had said hundreds of years prior that he would die with the wicked, he did die with the wicked. And then we read that he, they divided his garments, Psalm 22, verse 18, a thousand years ahead of time, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. And the Bible is telling us what's going to happen to Jesus. Prophecy. Speaking of very specific things that would take place, even down to, his clothing, and how the clothing would be divided. And so we we see the mercy of the Lord even in this late stage. Verses 44 through 49. Now it was, and we see Jesus here dies on the cross. Now it was about the sixth hour. It was noon. And there was darkness all over the earth until the ninth hour. And the sun was darkened and the veil of the temple was torn in two. And when Jesus cried out with a loud voice, he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last. So that when the centurion saw what had happened, he glorified God, saying, certainly this was a righteous man. So you have a centurion, you have a thief on the cross, you have Pilate, and you have Herod that have all said, this guy's innocent. Of course, Jesus claimed that he was you know, innocent as well. He had done none of these things that they had accused him of. And so he sees. Verse 48, And the whole crowd came together to that site, seeing what had been done, beat their breasts, and returned. But all his acquaintances and the women who followed him from Galilee stood at a distance, watching these things. Wow. Can you imagine how they must have felt? But this darkness covers the land. It was full moon. Eclipses don't happen during a full moon. But it became dark that day. It is the darkest day of human history. The day that creation killed the creator. And darkness covered the whole land. Let me just read to you. We're wrapping it up here. But let me just read to you a quote from Adam Clark. A commentator from way back when. And he says that this darkness was supernatural as evident from this. That it happened during the Passover which was celebrated only at the full moon, a time in which it was impossible for the sun to be eclipsed. But many suppose the darkness was over the whole world and think there is sufficient evidence of this in ancient authors. Flagellan, Thalus, who flourished in the beginning of the second century, are supposed to speak of this. The former says, In the fourth year of the 202nd Olympiad, there was an extraordinary eclipse of the sun. At the sixth hour, the day was turned into a dark night so that stars in heaven were seen. And so they, they killed the light of the universe and it became dark and we know that an earthquake took place. And, you know, what, what a scene. Now we read in verse 45 that not only was the sun darkened, other accounts tell us of the earthquake, but the veil in the temple was ripped. So if we could put that... That image up there. So here's a, a cutaway, a, a look into the, um, the temple, um, the holy place, right? So you have the outer court. So you have, of course, I guess on the right-hand side, you have the door that would lead you in there. Then you have the table of showbread. You have the candelabra, the uh, altar of incense. And you have the next purple curtain. That's the veil, and um, some have said that this might have been as thick as 18 inches long. So this was, this was a, a very thick, woven piece of material. Behind that, you have the Ark of the Covenant, the Holy of Holies. And um, this is where the high priest went once a year. It is that, that curtain that was ripped in two. So the priest would be in that first part of, of the holy place, All day long. They were keeping the candles going. They were changing out the bread. They were attending to the altar of incense. But to that secondary section, only one man, the high priest, would go once a year. And that is the veil in the temple that was ripped in two. And so we read in Hebrews 10, verses 19 through 22. Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus his body, his veil was ripped, right? By a new and living way, which he consecrated for us through the veil that is his flesh. Think of his body being ripped apart. As his body was being ripped apart, the way to come into the presence of God, that veil that kept out was being ripped apart as well. And having a high priest over the house of God, let us, what do we do with that information? Here it is, verse 22. Let us draw near. With their true heart, a full assurance of faith. Having a heart sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. What is that? Go meet with Jesus. Go have a quiet time. Go worship with him. Oh, I'm not welcome. No. Don't allow there to be a condemnation there. You can have a full assurance of faith that you belong there because of what Jesus has done. Nobody was welcome to come behind that veil except for one man once a year of a particular family. But now, all of us get to go behind that veil as often as we want to. How often do we go? Well, let us draw near. That's the exhortation, right? Therefore, having boldness, you can come right into the throne room of God. But here's what's even more amazing. This temple on earth is simply a reproduction Of a temple that exists where? In heaven. This temple's gone. But the the temple that exists in heaven that this was made out of, it still exists. So as you draw near to the Lord, you are drawing near to the presence of the Lord. Because you are seated in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. We worship him there. We are here physically, but in spirit we are coming behind that veil right into the presence of God should all kind of knock on our heads right now and say, why don't we go more? Why don't we linger longer? In the presence of Almighty God, who loves us. Don't ever think you don't belong there. If you've come to Christ, you belong there. And he wants you to have boldness to go into that place. We close there, verse 50 through 55. Now behold, there was a man named Joseph, a council member, a good and just man. So he was part of the Sanhedrin, and he had not consented to their decision indeed. So there were those that said, absolutely not. We're not going to condemn this guy. He was from Arimathea. Now who knows, maybe he wasn't even invited to that meeting because they knew what his answer was going to be. These guys were schemers and plotters and planners so they probably kept him out of that meeting a city of the Jews who himself also was also waiting for the kingdom of God This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus then he took it down wrapped it in linen and laid it in a tomb that was hewn out of the rock where no one had ever lain before That day was a preparation and the Sabbath drew near and the woman who had come with him from Galilee followed after, and they observed the tomb and how the body was laid. In other words, they knew where that tomb was. They didn't all just, well, we can't remember where he was. And that's one of the things that people say. He didn't rise from the dead, they just all forgot where the tomb was. No, no, not that big of a city. But again, that prophecy of Isaiah says, but with the rich at his death, Isaiah 53:9. He hung between two criminals, as Isaiah the prophet said, some 600 years before, and then he was laid in the tomb of the rich. And this is exactly what happened to me. I mean, we have, we can read this. We have this the sure word of prophecy. The things that the, the, the scripture says would happen hundreds of years, thousands of years before. And not only that, if we go all the way back to uh, where. Abraham offered up his son Isaac as a sacrifice, and God stopped him and said, Don't do that. I will provide myself a sacrifice. It's on that same spot that Jesus died, as where Abraham was offering up Isaac. Jesus died there. When you go there, and you look at the, the lay of the land, the highest part is Golgotha from the temple. Go up there. Now, it's cut away because of all the... you know. Uh, uh, quarrying that they did. But that, that is, you know, Mount Moriah is where the temple mount was. But Mount Moriah goes all the way up to Golgotha, Calvary. And Jesus died right there where the father said, I will provide myself a sacrifice. And he provided his only son. Even as there was that foreshadowing of Abraham taking and offering up his only son. And Jesus walked with the wood on his back. And willingly laid down his life. So powerful. So as believers, this story reminds us of the fact that we are loved. That we are forgiven. That there's a kingdom. We're going to heaven. We're going to be with Jesus. And that our sin is an ugly thing. And that sin should be avoided at all costs. One last passage. Hebrews 12 It's a hard thing to consider that hostility, but it's there for us to consider it. Lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls, you have not yet resisted to bloodshed, striving against sin. We strive against sin with the idea and calling to remembrance the hostility that Jesus went through and all that he endured and everything that he went through to redeem us from sin. And now... The least we can do is strive against sin. Well, I've done everything we had. No, you haven't. No, I haven't. We can do more to walk in holiness and righteousness. It doesn't save us, but those that are saved by this sacrifice should certainly be given over to striving against sin. Such powerful reminders. You are not redeemed with silver or gold or incorruptible things, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb. Slain for you. How wonderful. Again, we read this verse, but he made him who knew no sin, Jesus, to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. In Jesus, you're made righteous. Isn't it wonderful? He became fully sinful in that hour and paid the price, but we become fully righteous. What kind of righteousness? What kind of righteousness does Jesus have? That's the righteousness, righteous standing you have before the Lord right now. That's pretty amazing. And if that doesn't make you want to walk in holiness, you probably need to get saved. Because that, is, that, that just draws us into living a holy and righteous life. Let's pray together. Father, thank you that you've opened up the way. We want to go in. Over and over again, Lord, and we want to linger long in your presence. Thank you for this account. Thank you, Lord, for this this record that's been left behind. Help us, Lord, to take it in and to be reminded of your love and the ugliness of sin and the certainty of salvation. Lord, I pray that you would overwhelm us all especially those that maybe are here who have never given their life to Jesus. And if that is you, you've never given your life to Christ, you've been waiting, I don't know what for, maybe you don't even know what for, but if you know that Jesus died on the cross for you, and you know that he rose from the dead, and there is eternal life possible in him, then why don't you come to him like that thief did? And as we close in this song, you can come on up. There are people who will be happy to pray with you. and to. how you had to begin that journey and walk with the Lord. If you're listening on the radio, right where you are, pray. Ask Christ to come in your life. It's too late. It's not too late. You had a thief dying with his last breath and said, will you remember me? And Jesus said, you bet I will. As a matter of fact, we're going to taste of that kingdom today, buddy. And you can have that certainty of eternal life because the Lord wants to forgive. Even, even you. Even you.